Hey, welcome to another podcast. Today, I'm talking to Jessica Heckman from the Functional Dog Collaborative and, of course, host of the Functional Breeding Podcast, which I'm a massive fan of. It's one of my favorite podcasts uh, available on the subject of dogs, so I really recommend you go and check that out. But before we get started, I also want to tell you about an event we're running here in Bristol, which is the Introduction to Bike Drawing event with Cat Le Chevalier on October the 7th. If you do want to get tickets and join us here in Bristol for to learn about bike drawing and to get your dog started, then you can do that by going to houndplus.com and then go on to the events tab and you should be able to click it and you'll find all the all the details there. Let's get started. Hey Jessica, welcome to the show. Hey Nick, I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you on. I've been a fan of your podcast for a while now. I can't even remember how I found it. I was probably searching for podcasts on, you know, outcrossing and functional breeding. And I think I just stumbled across your podcast and I've binged a lot of it now. And you've had, you've done some amazing episodes. You did an episode, you did, we well, did two episodes, but um, your episode with Alison Skipper on uh, registries was fascinating and I, I shared that one actually I don't normally share podcasts on my page but it was so good that I shared it and then I've I've listened to to so many of your podcasts and actually I've recorded with Alison as well now because after hearing her on your podcast I was like oh wow I want to I want to talk to her More too. people should hear from her she's amazing yeah absolutely absolutely fascinating but you're doing something really incredible as well with the with the functional dog collaborative so for people that don't know about uh, who you are. Maybe you could give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself. Yeah. Um, I have a, a bit of a chaotic background. So um, I went to veterinary school a little bit late in life. Um, so I'm a veterinarian and I got a, did a shelter medicine internship, internship after that. So I have shelter medicine, advanced training, and then um, did a PhD at the University of Illinois in um, genetics of in behavioral genetics of canids, basically. We were studying foxes, but they're very similar to dogs. Um, did some work at the Broad Institute. That's where I did my postdoc. Uh, I was there for about five years. Um, and that was where I got to work for the Darwin's Ark Project, which is a really cool project and a lot of fun to do. And then after that, um, I've been focusing on the Functional Dog Collaborative, although I am still, uh, I have sort of two side gigs. Um, one is that I teach for Virginia Tech. They have this excellent online program for animal behavior masters. So anyone who's like into dog training, but wants to take it that next step and doesn't want to have to move <laughs> to yeah. wherever the program is, it's a really good program. So I highly recommend it. And then I've been doing some consulting for Aaron Hex lab at Harvard, which uh, is a really cool dog cognition lab. So that's been a lot of fun. Wow. You're interested. You're you're into some really uh really interesting projects by the sounds of it, and I think maybe that's I don't know. I think maybe that also was probably where I found you. Maybe because of that dog training connection, I probably mm. saw you see your name around. I, I I don't I don't remember, but uh, but yeah, I think what you're doing with the with the functional dog collaborative is particularly interesting, and I don't know of anyone doing anything similar. Maybe there is. I I don't know. Um, could you explain a little bit more about about what that is? Yeah, I think that there's bits and pieces of what we do that other people do. Like, I don't think we're completely filling a 
a complete void, but I don't think there's anyone doing exactly all the different things that, that we do together. Um, yeah, I guess I, I came to it as thinking about that we have some societal structures for how we breed dogs and they can be limiting. Um, there's a lot of ways that those, you know, those structures are in place for a reason, right? To guide to guide our society away from relying on, you know, really high volume, low animal welfare breeders that we might call puppy mills um, and to to help sort of guide breeders into ways of, of breeding dogs really well. Um, but there's there's some ways that we know that we could do better that we haven't been doing better and that there's basically the societal structure sort of keeping people from filling in those ways as easily. Or another way of, of saying is that it's hard for people to find each other, that there's not good institutions out there either for um, breeders who are breeding in slightly less mainstream ways to find each other or for people who are, you know, the the other thing, and this is this is not so much what we do yet, although we'd like to to provide some solutions for this in the future. Um, someone who wants to get a puppy and wants to know that that puppy is coming from a breeder that has practices that they're comfortable with. Um, those are all things that are that were challenges that I was looking at. And so the Functional Dog Collaborative provides a place for people to come together who, who want to do a really excellent job of breeding dogs. For whatever their intended purpose is, I would say the majority of people that we talk with are... Um, the majority of of members on our Facebook group, anyways, are companion animal breeders, pet dog breeders. But there's certainly people there as well, breeding working dogs and service dogs and all kinds of of other jobs that dogs have. Um, and so we wanted to provide education and community and support. Um, education. So we have the podcast, which you mentioned, which is probably our deepest source of education. Uh, but we do have other stuff. We have um, the excellent midwifery is our educational content. So we work with G Khalsa on that. Um, so that is a series of courses that you can take, um, those we do charge for, that will help up your game as a breeder. So they can help people just, you know, from starting out or people who are already know what they're doing, but want to learn more. Um, we have an article library. And so that is um, summaries of peer reviewed articles, scientific articles, but they're summarized for lay people so that hopefully sort of anyone without a scientific background would be able to read it. There's a link to the original article. And then there's the sort of the, we like put in bold, here's the big takeaway from this article. And so that's supposed to make the scientific literature about dog breeding more accessible to people. Um, we have a couple of projects that are putting together breeding cooperatives. And that's really exciting. I think breeding cooperatives are are the, I hope, the wave of the future of breeders getting together, having agreements about sort of what kinds of dogs they're breeding and working together to also maintain, make sure that, you know, the welfare of the animals and the the quality of their breeding is good. Um, and, and obviously also to help each other find breeding stock because that can be really hard for people. Um, so we have a couple of those projects in their fledgling stages right now, and we're really excited about those. That's that's where I hope people will be able to go to to find puppies who are really bred to be good pets in the future. Yeah, we absolutely must come back to the breeding cooperatives because that is something that it definitely needs to be spoken about. Um, but yeah, it's just a it's a really interesting project. And I think for me, it's like particularly salient right now because, uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago that I was searching for a puppy. And one thing that I realized is that 
you know, as a dog trainer, there are lots of things that people tell you to look for, you know, like the early neurological stimulation or, you know, that you want someone that might be involved in something like puppy culture or one of the equivalents, um, you know, and there's like a long list of, you know, all the health tests and, you know, low inbreeding score and like, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And one of the things that I've found when I actually got to the reality of searching for a puppy was there, there just wasn't a single breeder that I could find that actually kind of met all of the criteria, you know, that was doing the early socialization and, you know, like ticked all of the boxes. Um, and also I widened my search. Like I was happy to go anywhere in Europe, um, not just in the UK. And I ended up getting my puppy from Germany, but, um, but, you know, obviously most people aren't going to be willing to do that. Most people don't want to travel huge distances to, to go, go to their breeder. And I don't think people realize until they actually search for a puppy that what I found was you I found I basically, I had to make compromises. It's what compromises I was going to make. It wasn't a case of like, um, you know, I was going to have a breeder that had hit every single thing that I wanted them to have done. So I, uh, you know, so I, that was my experience. Um, and I, I'm super happy with the breeder I went with, by the way. Um, oh, good. But, uh, but, you know, I, I think that, I think that's the reality of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of people find that, um, we have a, a sister project, which I didn't list as part of the FDC, but it's called the puppy seekers project. It's run by Jacqueline George. And she tries to work with people going through these exact searches um, and one of the things she talks about is think if I'm not sure this is the exact phrase that she uses, but it's risk mitigation. So that's exactly what you said is like, people will start out their, their search with a really long list. Um, basically, you know, the dog has to be from this reader that does everything perfectly and, you know, above and beyond, and then come to find out there's reality and no one actually hits all those checks, all those check boxes. And Jacqueline's really good. I mean, she's, she's great at, you know, sort of helping people talk through what they want, but also it's sort of saying like, okay, well, if you are thinking about going with this one breeder and they don't check these boxes, let's talk through what are the risks of going with a dog where the breeder doesn't check those boxes? Like what are the really important boxes? Um, and yes, it would be great to have everything ideal, but you know, then you may be waiting two or three years, which we recognize a lot of people are are not willing to do. Um, and I think that's important, helping people with the, that kind of sort of thinking things through, because I've seen too many people when presented with this, basically just throw up their hands and get the closest dog. Um, you know, yeah. just like, well, I can't, I can't figure, I can't navigate this market. And so I'm just going to get what I can get. And sometimes that works fine and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. I, I'm always quite surprised by people I know that are actually professionals, you know, other professional trainers and such that um, that do exactly that. They just go get the dog from the local breeder. And I'm kind of like, it just shocks me. Uh, I, for me, I was, I was quite happy to travel anywhere because at the end of the day, I'm going to have the dog for 10, 12, you know, hopefully even longer years. So, you know, what's a couple of days travel for that? But I don't think most people think like that. I think they are looking for like geography is a is a really important factor. And also when you're in the market for a puppy, you're generally really excited about that. And like, you just <laughs> yes. kind of, sometimes that gets the better of you and you kind of talk yourself into, yes. you know, accepting uh, a dog from a breeder that maybe you, maybe you wouldn't have went with. 
it seems to me like the functional dog collaborative is really about trying to breed dogs that are more functional, obviously, um, but healthier dogs, you know, um, and I, I heard you say before, Jessica, like not just health wise, but behaviorally as well, which is mm-hmm. obviously really important, especially for the people that listen to this podcast that are probably going to be more into training than, than anything else. Um, and then of course the like byproduct of that is then that provides a, you know, a population and almost a standard for people to come and look for puppies a little bit like puppy culture does something similar on a smaller scale, you know, where it's like a lot of people want to go to a puppy culture breeder. Although it seems like the issue that comes about with that, at least with them is there's just not enough, you know, there's just like, you know, if I'm looking for this breed and a puppy culture breeder, like you know, I might find one, but you know, they're on the other side of the world. You know, it's really hard to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's exactly one of the things that we would like to, to be able to do is to start building up institutions where we can, you know, basically be training people to, to breed in. uh, It's hard to say. I Sometimes I start to fall back on saying like breeding the way I want them to breed dogs, Um, but really, really (laughs) doing good and a good job at like everyone has a different definition of what a good job is, but uh, breeding really thoughtfully and carefully. And and there's a lot of people out there, I think, who are who don't know what they don't know. Um, so when we talk about the the institutions that are in place right now um, to support breeders are I think there are institutions that really provide guidelines for breeders who are breeding um, purebreds. Um, you know, the breed clubs often have or hopefully always have guidelines for what health testing should happen and there's guidelines for how to prove your dog's shows and things like that. But the people who are doing the sort of um, what we would call backyard breeding often. Um, and for those who don't, who don't know that is that term as common in the, in Europe as it is. In yeah, no, people do US? use that yeah, term. You guys yeah. Know what that means. yeah. So, so, but we think we know what it means, but what does it mean? Right? Like we, we don't have definitions for all these things. And so we, you know, there's this, this Facebook culture where a lot of us look down on backyard breeders as people who are, you know, not health testing and not doing puppy culture and not placing thoughtfully. But a backyard breeder is a really wide range of different possibilities. And I think there are people who are doing that just for money and not thinking about the dog's welfare. But there are also people who are, you know, who we might put into that category who really do care about their dog's welfare and are trying to do everything that they can do and are trying to manage the parents well and do the health testing and and place dogs thoughtfully, but don't know. They don't know all the health testing that they need to do. There's you see a lot of people on Facebook sort of saying that their their dogs are fully tested. And what they end up meaning is that they've done an embark panel. And they don't know that that doesn't that that doesn't cover everything. Or they don't know how that puppy culture is out there um, or that how important really working hard to socialize the puppies are. So and I feel like there's this wide pool of people that we can reach there that we can help say we know that you just don't know that these things are important but if we can explain that these things are important and help you to implement them um then i think the problem that you identified there is that there's not enough breeders right like your wait list is going to be long there's not enough breeders doing that really exceptional job but if we can start helping more people move into that space um which may involve changing some de- definitions Right. Some of the people that we currently label backyard breeders may be very enthusiastic about ab- adding hip testing, but not about going and putting um, obedience titles or confirmation titles on their dogs. Um, and so those sorts of things may be things that we may have to reevaluate. 
I also feel like, you know, backyard breeders are, are almost the scapegoat for a lot of breeding, you know, in terms mm. of like, I come across so many breeders that are like really uh, deep in the, their breed communities and they may even be like very respected. But then actually when you dig deeper, they're not doing hip tests, for example, mm-hmm. you know, and I actually see this a lot because of my job doing uh you know, one-to-one training and stuff like that. Oftentimes, because I have a curiosity, I'll ask people where they got the dog from. I'll look at the the pedigrees and they'll tell me what an incredible breeder the dog is, uh, breeder the bred the dog is. And then you dig deeper into it and there's no hip scoring at all. But mm-hmm. they were they were absolutely ranted at about don't let your dog climb stairs, all of this kind of stuff. I think a lot of... Um, well, maybe I'm going down a rabbit hole, but I, I think... Um, That's what podcasts are for, right? <laughs> I think one of the things with hip dysplasia especially is, I mean, a lot of people don't... I think some people don't hip score and they really stress the environmental stuff so they can blame the owner. Do, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't know yeah. if they do that intentionally, but then they can kind of say, oh, you know, your dog got hip dysplasia because I bet you let them climb upstairs, you know? Right. and I right. It, you know, and in fact, they just didn't do any testing at all. Yeah, there's, yeah, it's, it's hard to, because I think there's like, when you're a breeder, you really want to, you know, you love the dogs, you want to do a good job and you want to produce puppies that are going to be really healthy. I haven't bred a litter, but I can only imagine that if you, if you breed a litter and you produce a dog that has hip dysplasia, it's, you got to feel terrible. Um, and and I think it's it's hard to wrap your head around how complex that particular disorder is, right? Like, so there's the the straightforward disorders like von Willebrand's disease, where you get there's like the one genetic mutation, you have it, you don't have it. It's actually a little bit more complex than that, but you know, sort of Mendelian, very straightforward stuff. Hip dysplasia is complex, meaning that there's lots of different genes, which is why it's really hard for us to breed. Um, in the direction of better hips, because there's so many different genes that you, you don't really know what each dog is carrying um, until you've bred them a bit already. Um, and then, yeah, there are environmental factors, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the owner did a bad job, right? It could just be chance that the, you know, that the dog happened to slip just wrong one day when it was, you know, in a particular delicate growth phase or something like that. I I just think, I think some people don't do tests Mm. because they actually don't want to know the answer. Mm. Do you know what I mean? That's right. That's what I was getting. See, I told you I would get distracted. That's okay. But it's just like, Um, you know, I think sometimes if you don't do the test, you don't get the answer that you don't want to see. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. And actually one thing that we've talked about sometimes is that people online sometimes will say that their litters have been fully health tested. But then the question is, what do you do with the results of that, of those tests, right? So you can, another thing that people can do is test the hips and then just, you know, what do you do with it? We actually have a, a podcast episode or there, were there actually, I don't remember if it was a pair of podcast episodes. I think it may have been with um, Mary Peasley, who um, has been breeding for a long time, has a solid science background, talking about hip testing specifically and how hard that one is. Um, how there's not like a line to draw where you can say if the dog gets this score, I'll breed it. And if it doesn't get that score, I won't breed it. Um, and her experience with using the tests that are out there. And I 
we probably got into talking a little bit about there's this um this is not really relevant as relevant to your audience but the the future of estimated breeding values which is again something that like um it would help us breed much better for um tighter hips but involves a lot of da data acquisition and organization which is again something that the fdc is trying to provide but um you know dealing with dog breeders is like herding cats they all have their own well that's actually where interests. you know something like the fdc can be helpful because you can you can kind of make that information accessible to people and they're not just on their own to try and figure it out you know um but yeah no it's just interesting you know when it comes to testing and i also think you know the majority of I, I don't think I've ever really met a dog owner as well that actually understands the elbow and hip score testing thing. <laughs> and it might be, I don't know, it might be easier in different countries because different countries have different kind of ways of doing it. But in the UK, we have like a number system, you know, mm. so you get numbers um, versus in Germany, they have like an A grade and B grade. Maybe that's more straightforward. Mm. I don't know. But um, it seems like um, in the UK, even <laughs> I don't, well, to be fair, I'm not even sure that dog owners would be aware to ask for the testing in the first place. But even if they did, I don't think they would really understand what was a good or a bad score. Um, yeah. Well, not that it's hard to understand, not like it's beyond them or anything, but um, but most no, people but haven't done that level question. of research. Right. So when you're buying a puppy at eight weeks, you're not getting the hip score of the puppy. You only have the hip scores of the parents. And so you have to use, you have to sort of look at that and... And so there's four scores, right? Because there's two parents with, with two hips each. And, and then you also have to balance all the information that the breeder is balancing about, okay, so, you know, maybe I have the two parents and of the four hips, one of the hips isn't great. And it's, you know, so it's not ideal, but do I wash this parent from the breeding program? Or do I say, you know, she has a lovely personality and, um, you know, her confirmation is great in all other ways. And she's such a great pet. And, um, very healthy, you know, I haven't seen any other health problems. Um, and so, and in a case like, and, you know, and in, in many breeding populations, you'd sort of say, this is the right choice. There's not another dog. That's a better, a better match here. Um, and it's, that's something that it takes breeders, I think years of really understand, you know, working with the populations that they're working with and coming to understand what the right choices are. So asking a puppy buyer to look at, the health tests for the parents and understand if that was a good choice. I think you're right. It's too much. It's, it's, it's like when we buy a house and we hire an inspector to tell us if the house is solid, right? We don't expect ourselves to be able to decide that on our own. Um, so we were talking about cooperatives and the, the, one of the ideas there is that a breeding cooperative, a group of breeders would come together and they would, um, you know, be very public about what sort of what health testing they have all agreed to um, and what their what their goals are, um, hopefully have data about how healthy the populations that they're producing are. So this is a long term dream. Right. And so then you as a puppy buyer would not necessarily have to go interpret the results for a particular litter, but you'd go look at the cooperative and say, I really like the goals that this has set forward and I can see from their data that they're producing healthy dogs. Um, with an understanding that this is biology and every so often something will happen. Um, and so I can feel comfortable going with them. So it's sort of a brand approach. How, 
That's so many questions. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. With the breeding cooperative, how does it work? You know, are you directly being told, hey, you need to breed your dog with this dog? Or do you have some choice in the matter? Is it just a suggestion? You know, how does it work? So I think every cooperative will set up their own rules. Um, at its heart, it's a group of breeders working together. So they could decide that there would be someone in charge telling everyone who to breed. But again, knowing breeders, I don't think they would be very, I, I think it would be unlikely that you'd find a group of breeders that would be enthusiastic about that approach. Um, but that is the tension, right? So there's going to be uh, somewhere between the individual breeders going to want to mostly make their own decisions. But I think the vision is that they would be, as they're making their decisions, they'd be interacting with a community of other breeders that they really trust and saying things like, you know, okay, well, it's time for me to breed this dog. I'm really excited about it. I'm looking for a match for her and I'm trying to decide between these. And so maybe they'd have this community to help them decide, to help them even find a match in the community. Um, but then, yeah, I think the community should be able to step in from time to time and say, hey, um, you've been breeding this one dog a lot and we've, and we can see that in some of the puppies, there's whatever health condition coming up. Um, you know, hey, let's let's talk about whether this is really what you should be doing. Um, and again, this is very early days, so I don't know how all that will shake out. Um, I don't know how the communities will grow or is how this, they will- Is this up and running yet or not? So there's two um, currently that are up and running, but small. Um, the co-pilot breeding cooperative and the companion dog project. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. And so there are, um, so there are litters that have been born through these cooperatives um, and they are putting together their specific rules for, you know, what, what their breeding goals are. They've worked with me a bit. I mean, so I haven't told them the rules. They have developed their rules and then come to me and been like, here's what we're thinking. Um, and we've had a lot of really interesting conversations, just that, it's really hard to make a list of rules for what is a good breeding decision, particularly. So these two cooperatives are both um, allowing both purebreds and mixed breeds. So if you were to have, for example, a breeding cooperative that said, we're going to be breeding sporty border collies for agility, um, and they're only going to be border collies, they're going to be purebred, then I think having, or, you know, or maybe we'll outcross. But having that specific breed or type gives you a lot of guidance over what kinds of diseases you're going to be curious about, uh, watching carefully, what kinds of tests you need to do, um, how concerned you need to be about hip dysplasia versus cancer. Um, and But these two cooperatives that we have that are getting their feet off the ground right now, because they're basically accepting anything uh, genetics-wise, how do they say, like, how do they say that you need to do cardiac testing, but maybe this is a breed or a mix that just never, pretty much never, or doesn't have any elevated risk of cardiac problems, let's say it that way. So they're sort of working through that. And the the hip testing was a big one. <laughs> it's like, yeah, how rigorous do we need to be about the hip testing? That matters a lot more for big dogs than for small dogs. Like, it's just really hard. So are these cooperatives under the FTC banner or are they just kind of their own thing? One of them is definitely under the FTC banner. The other one is going to be, but it is so new that we're still sort of talking through what that looks like. Um, All right. Yeah. And these don't, these, well, I guess you kind of answered this already, but this is, this isn't uh, by breed then, you know, this isn't like those a Labrador breeding. Right. So those two are not, but there's no reason, reason a cooperative couldn't be for a breed. 
And um, why, what's the difference between like a cooperative and just, you know, like people that are friends and uh, just yeah. kind of, you know, like, it, isn't there lots of cooperatives, you know, just people don't call them that, you know, just like. Mm, are there? Um, so I would be interested actually in talk. Well, I think, I think a lot of the, the answer to that, a lot of that comes down to size. I think there probably are a lot of cases of two or three breeders who are friends who, who are doing exactly those things. I envision the two cooperatives that we have. I actually don't know how many breeders they have involved right now. Um, but because they tend to be the kind of breeders that only have a, a litter or so a year, I think they've each cooperative has only had a few litters so far. Um, scale, I think, is going to be really important for this, having a larger group of people so that you have a larger base of support, um, particularly for if you would like to be changing, uh, exchanging genetics, right? It's nice to have a wider base to go to for that. But I think the really, the really important answer to your question is that a cooperative is something with structure. So it has guidelines, it has goals, um, has some kind of rules, lets you know what you're getting into. I really love this idea. This is really clever. Um, how do people communicate within the cooperative though? Again, up to them. The two that we have so far, I think are Facebook based at this point. Yeah. I have failed to get them onto Slack. I tried to get them onto Slack. I told them that Facebook was the devil and they said that that was where everybody was. <laughs> yeah, it's a little it's bit true. difficult. <laughs> no, I can relate to that. I don't really like, I don't know. It's tough, isn't it? What, you know, what is the ideal? Because, so with these cooperatives then, do you have, okay, so you have a group of people that all kind of want to achieve the same thing. Um, is there, presumably there are, you know, it's not really, there's some kind of organizational hierarchy. There is some kind of person that is kind of overlooking this and making things, mm -hmm. making sure things kind of operate and people talk to each other. Mm -hmm. uh, is, is there kind of like a, um, you know, is there some kind of leadership? A leader, um, a fearless leader. Yeah. So both. So, and again, like, again, I don't, I don't, I feel like a cooperative could do it however they wanted to. And so if they felt like they were able to do it completely egalitarian with everyone having a say, I think that could theoretically work. But again, as you start to scale up, I think it would be really hard. Um, and we're also feeling our way through this right now and trying to figure out how things work best. Um, with, with some guidance for looking to, you know, the original breeding cooperatives are in the guide dog and working dog worlds. Um, so sort of looking to how they do things. Um, I do, I do think it is valuable to have a vision and a visionary leading you. And so the two cooperatives that we have right now, um, one of them is led by Carolyn Kelly and the other is led by, uh, Laura Sharkey and Erica Pivalotny. So. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, okay. They do have, they do have visions at their heads. I've heard you speak before about some of the ways it can work within a cooperative as well, because, uh, you know, let's say someone wants to add a puppy to their project, you know, you can do a lot. It seems like you had a bit of a system for that, <laughs> which maybe got a little confusing in terms of, um, isn't there some kind of like credit system or something? So someone can swap a puppy? For, I can't remember. Oh, for the not... I mean, so, and again, like in our, in our cooperatives, anyone could do it however they wanted to do it. Um, so I don't think we have any of those, not, neither of them have any of those sorts of systems set up yet, but they have, they have talked about incentives. Um, in the working dog world with the breeding cooperatives, I know that there are, um, 
a lot of what they are worried about is maintaining genetic diversity within the breeding dog population since they want to be able to swap dogs among the different organizations that are part of the cooperatives. I don't know exactly what the rules are for that, but I know that they do have structures where, you know, you, and, you, and they, they also have things for like where small breeding programs can like receive a breeding dog but then have to give dogs back and stuff like that, which I think is, again, could be really valuable, um, valuable practices for us to learn from as we start again, trying to have there be more, more breeders breeding, um, breeding responsibly. Let me, let me just take a minute though, for that sentence, just because there's been, um, there's a thread on the functional breeding Facebook group right now about how it's a little harder for people to place puppies at the moment because the market is pretty full. And we're talking about like adding breeders, right? Um, and I want to emphasize that I'm not talking about breeding more dogs. I'm talking about breeding the dogs that we're already breeding, but maybe doing a better job of it, right? So you and I were talking a lot about the concepts of people who are sort of breeding as backyard breeders and whether we could um, find people who their hearts are in the right place, but help teach them about health testing and things like that. So I think a lot of the problems with overpopulation, um, dogs being stuck in shelters, those come from a lot of different places, but having the dog's initial origins be with breeders who are producing really healthy dogs and really behaviorally resilient dogs, which you gave me a, a lead in to talk about and I failed to pick up on, but behaviorally resilient dogs um, I think that's helpful in the fight to keep dogs out of shelters. It's not the whole story, but it's a big part of the story, honestly. If you know, right, if people are producing dogs that fit well into homes and they're being thoughtful about what, what homes they place them into, that will reduce the number of dogs coming through shelters. There's dogs that go into shelters for all kinds of reasons. Um, but those are, you know, health problems and behavior problems are important. No, I reasons think among those that we should be fighting. Yeah, no, honestly, like I said, from doing my own search, I think a lot of people will be shocked at the kind of quality of breeding that's going on or the lack of quality, you know, like the lack of quality at any scale, you know, like uh, really good breeders are like really a minority, you know, like it seems like uh, the large majority of breeding is kind of like really haphazard. Uh, that's probably the majority of breeding. It's just kind of like, you know, there's not really a lot that of thought that goes hazard. into it. Yeah. You know, uh, that's been my experience anyway. And then there's also among the people that are maybe a little bit more thoughtful, there are people who like their priorities and my priorities would not align. You know? <laughs> right. You know, like I'm trying to breed a pug with the flattest face I can breed. It's like, okay, we're just on different planets. Like this is, this does not appeal to me at all. Um, and, and actually, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, um, well, actually this is like an interesting, uh, part of the application of the cooperatives and the FDC is the, the idea of outcrossing because at the moment it's kind of hard to get into creating outcrossing projects because mm -hmm. unless you're going to have like a lot of dogs, you don't really have the ability to, um, do multiple generations, you know, uh, it's, it's like quite an undertaking on your own. Yes. yes. Um, uh, but I know that with the cooperatives, you can kind of collaborate with people a lot more and it makes it a lot more achievable. I heard you talking about how, uh, you know, 
you were giving an example of uh, Wolfhound mixes. You know, someone wanted to do something different, like a different project uh, with a with a wolfhound mix they might be trying to achieve something different but but that suits them or or whatever and again it's mm. kind of hard for me to explain um but you see what i'm getting at i do and that was yeah and that was one of the big driving forces for me in founding this group was that i could see that there were a lot of little groups that needed a an umbrella to come together so they could find each other um which i think is the the one thing I can say is it's like I've checked that box. People know that they can come to us to find each other now. Um, so that's good. Yeah, outcrossing is a big challenge. Um, and that's you know, when I talk about the the social boundaries. So there's groups of people who are interested in breeding without outcrossing, and there are groups of people who are interested in breeding with outcrossing. The people who are more interested in breeding without outcrossing often have control of the bloodlines. It often is challenging for someone who wants to outcross to get hold of dogs to breed. Um, and that is a social thing that I would hope that we could work on changing that. And and also those people who prefer to breed without outcrossing, I would really like us to all be able to sort of come to an understanding where it's okay for people to breed the way they want to breed. And so, and that requires change on both sides. So the, those who are sort of against outcrossing, I feel like then you don't have to outcross, but I would like to see you not eject people from your breed club because they are outcrossing. On the other, on the flip side of it, I think it's not helpful to be going on social media and attacking people who breed dogs with flat faces or prefer not to outcross or whatnot. Like attacking people for breeding differently than you do is not going to help fix the situation. And there is a lot of attacking going on. So sort of changing that whole conversation is a massive undertaking. And I don't I don't know if we will succeed at it, but that is the windmill that we're tilting at. No, I think that this is I don't know. I mean uh I feel like it's becoming more and more socially acceptable and discussed than than ever before uh especially with the issues that have cropped up from flat-faced dogs initially people were kind of very focused on that but then i think people started re realizing that actually there are wider issues with pedigree dogs you yes. know uh like there are some really obvious cases like dobermans um and different different breeds where the issues are just blatantly obvious but even in the the breeds that maybe are less blatantly obvious there are still huge problems you know uh but they just aren't quite so so obvious as, as other breeds um how do you see the fdc sitting uh alongside like the registry bodies you know like the the akc the kc um you know is this an alternative to that or is it just something that is a supplement to it how does how does that yeah. work that's something we're struggling with right now. Um, I'm working with a group in Finland called Data Canis, a uh, very small startup, but run by a brilliant woman um, named Nina Ohala. And this it is a data platform, which is meant to support multiple registries. So it is a service that you can use to put registry information in. And, and we're working closely together for that to evolve into 
um, a pretty complex platform that will support a lot of things that FTC wants to do. But one of the things it will definitely support is registries. So one possibility, and this is something that one of our cooperatives is exploring right now, one possibility is that a breeding cooperative might look into, do I want to let people register their dogs if they are breeding with through our, um, according to our guidelines? So actually, let me take a step back because one of the things that we had to do as we were talking about this was to define what a registry is. So many terms, as I get into this, we all know what it is to point at it. But if you have to actually compare it to something or describe it, it can be hard. So what we came up with for a registry is that you can get your dog's name put into the registry if it passes some rule. There has to be some hurdle to pass to get into the registry generally. And so for AKC, the hurdle is that the dog's parents have to have been registered and then you can register the dog. So, but there's there's no reason that a registry couldn't have additional rules. So for example, the golden retriever, uh, Golden Doodle Association of North America, Ghana, that registry does have health tests that you have to perform before you can register the um, a litter. So are those dogs AKC registered as well? Are those dogs AKC? No, they are Golden Doodles. So they are not. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about Golden Retrievers. I said Golden Retriever and then I was like, no, Jessica. (laughs) Okay, no worries. (laughs) Golden Doodles. uh, Golden Doodle Association of North America. so we would like to see more registries with guidelines or, or you know, rules that hoops that you have to pass to prove that the dogs are healthy before you can register them. Um, and so again, that's that's something that the co-ops that we have now are sort of looking into. How would that work? Um, again, it's really hard when you have multiple breeds and types, right? If you have a single breed, it's a lot easier to say, here are the tests that are the, the important tests that you have to pass. So we're sort of struggling with how do you define good breeding? Um, again, something that we think that we can point to, but then when you start actually talking about it, you start realizing there's just a lot of fuzzy, fuzzy borders to it. Um, so the idea would be, yes, that there would be registries again, this could sort of, this is, this is very, this is very cutting edge. As you ask me these questions, I'm like, oh, I don't know. Am I ready to talk about this yet? Um, but the idea, if it goes the way we're thinking right now would be that there would be probably multiple registries, but they would be sort of FDC affiliated. So you'd be able to go to the FDC, see the list of of potential registries and be like, well, I am looking for a lap dog that is low energy. Um, Where is a registry that registers dogs like that? And then you could go read what the hoops are that people have to jump through to get the dog registered. See if you're comfortable with that. Perhaps join the Puppy Seekers Project and be like, I'm trying to pick one of these. I don't know. Um, My very passionate hope is that we would get to the point where people would be able to say, if it's an FTC registry, then I just feel comfortable health and behavior wise. I just have to figure out what's appropriate for me. I would like, I would like it to get to that point where people are comfortable with it sort of from a branding perspective, but I would also like for all the information to be available so that if you want to dig in, you can, and for there to be people that you can get to help you dig in as well. So there's certainly the Puppy Seekers Project, and I could also imagine um, consultants that you could hire to basically be like, help me navigate this world. Because I think people need to realize it's a lot more complicated than it had been 20 yeah. years ago. Wow. That would, that would be amazing. I feel like, uh, you know, a lot of the kennel clubs have kind of got monopolies uh, where, you know, you kind of, you know, even if you're not happy with the way that they ran, you don't really have an option to go elsewhere. Um, and it's difficult because, you know, 
one of the issues with trying to set up a, a separate registry is, you know, are you not taking an already small gene pool and then just making it even smaller? Yet, you know, when you when you actually divide yourself from the world of the FCI, mm-hmm. um, how do you tackle that issue of the gene pool? Yeah, or you, you keep the registries open, right? It, you keep the FDC registry open, right? Yeah. But then, what what happens with the dogs that are that that are not within the FDC? That you've kind of taken, maybe you've let's say you've taken so, like well, so you can dual. So we would allow you to dual register if you wanted to. Um, so I guess you're, I think what you're asking is what if we set up this, um, well, your breed is German shepherd. So what if we were to create a German shepherd cooperative that we're breeding German shepherds to be sort of sporty pets. So the sort of higher energy, but bred to be decent companion dogs. And so they're really focusing on like, we, we want them to be okay when people come into the house, which is maybe something we have to work on hard for German shepherds. Um, you know, we want them not to have too much prey drive, that that kind of thing, you know, whatever the behavioral issues are working on those. Um, and then maybe feeling like, okay, well, in order to get some of that stuff, we have to, to outcross some. Um, and I think your question is, what happens if that cooperative is breeding something that looks like a German Shepherd, and we would call it a German Shepherd type, and maybe they're not purebred by FCI standards, but they are sort of looking like German Shepherds. Is that going to start bleeding people off from FCI into there? I I mean, that feels so far in the future to me. <laughs> like I, I have trouble imagining us actually, like, you know, we're a tiny little rowboat and they're this massive um, cruise liner. Like, can I imagine us actually um, really pulling from their, from their populations? Even on a small level, though, you'll you'll be doing it just straight away, right? Like you're taking individuals out of that system. Yeah. So right. Well. So and that's and part of that's that's the question of how they would want to handle that. So if there's a purebred um, and it's allowed to breed with a mixed breed to produce a dog for maybe for one of our cooperatives in theory, should that dog also be allowed to stay in a purebred breeding program, breeding dogs that can be registered with FCI? FCI is a registry. Uh, yeah, I think FCI is more like the governing body, isn't it, of all of the registry? Register with the KC. Yeah, sure, sure. Register with the KC. So we'd, I'd like like to have a (laughs) stable of, I'd like to have a kennel German Shepherds and I'd like to breed some of them. I'd like to breed the same ones and produce sometimes German Shepherd types that are not purebred and sometimes produce dogs that I can register with the KC and show. That's, that's the call, I think, of the, the KC or of the German Shepherd Club, whatever. Nobody oh my god! I'm just getting into how different it is for you guys, but we have specific clubs. You have clubs too, right? Yeah. We have clubs, but I don't think they're as important. You know, I've, I've okay. Well, I don't yeah. know about America. I know in Germany that uh, the breed clubs have a lot of say. Uh, you know, they have a lot more power, I think, than than in the UK. We have breed clubs, and they definitely have some power. But I'd, but yeah, I think in some different countries set things up differently, and it can become really quite hard to follow. Yes. All right. So let's say that the organization in that country, it's up to them whether they want to allow a dog to produce. So there's no reason that we should be stealing breeding stock. The breeding stock can still produce for different types of programs. And I would encourage that. Um, If there is a program that feels that because the dog has been bred for 
um, a mixed breed program in theory that therefore the dog is not no longer appropriate to be bred for a purebred program. That I feel like is something that they need to sort of struggle with on their That's own. That's their problem. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to say it that way. Um, however, my perspective is that I believe that a lot of the issues due to inbreeding are going to continue to get worse in a lot of the breeds that we're looking at. And I think that as the stewards of those breed clubs look harder and harder at what their outcrossing options are, I, I hope that some number of years from now, they will be happy to see that there is a closely related cooperative of German Shepherd-like dogs that they could use to outcross that already have some increased genetic diversity that they can bring in without having to go so far away from type, right? Because right now, if you want to outcross, you have to go sort of look at, well, you know, what's a breed that's similar enough to type, so it's not going to make the puppies look completely different, but at the same time is different <laughs> enough that I get the genetic diversity. Like, that's hard. Why don't you let somebody else do that for you mm. um, and produce this increased, increasingly diverse population, which is which will be German Shepherds like or you know your breed like yes you'll still take a hit when you outcross that is the nature of outcrossing but it won't be as big of a hit as if you went as far away what is i know you said like obviously maybe the ftc is right in the beginning of its journey you know what kind of scale are we talking about at the moment uh you know do you have people that are looking for ftc dogs uh you know, do you have a lot of breeders registered? I don't know if they register with you. Yeah, no, it's so it's it's very new. So it's um, we aren't registering any dogs. We are working hard on getting the registry. As I said, Data Canis, the, reg the registry software that we're working with. That is my number one priority right now is working to get that registry software to a point where breeders can actually use it. So I've been having conference calls um breeders and with a, another registry that might be interested in using it, um, a registry that we feel comfortable with having on the platform. Um, and so we've been talking to breeders about like, what, what do you need? Like, what are the features that you need to make the jump right now? And I'd say we're a couple months away probably from them being able to make the jump, but we are getting closer. I'm very hopeful that in 2023, we'll be able to start having, um, having breeders actually using that platform. That would be a big a big step uh, forward. At the moment, how yeah. do breeders get involved? Like say that a breeder is listening to this and this just really resonates with them and they want to get involved. How exactly do they go about that process? So if you want to join one of the cooperatives, go to, well, so only one of them is listed on the FTC website currently. You can go to the website, find the information about that cooperative and go look into it. Um, they and the other one will be listed soon as it as it matures. It's just not quite there yet. Um, another good way of getting involved, obviously, is going to the functional breeding Facebook group and just sort of, you know, starting to to participate and learn. So, but if you are interested in joining a cooperative, I guess I would say if you're interested in joining a cooperative today, reach out to me and I'll try to help. But what yeah. about at the moment? It sounds like you you know you only have the two cooperatives. You know, maybe someone wants to create a cooperative for something that you actually haven't focused on yet. Yes, how I do would you, how, love that. How does that happen? They reach out to me. <laughs> <laughs> I am the center. Yeah, you're um, kind of the godfather of this. <laughs> yeah, no, I would, I would love that. I would love to have, because right now what we have are two cooperatives that are very focused on breeding 
pet dogs that are like really good companion pet dogs, right? For sort of the average person. Can very be, needed. Very needed, um, very needed. But there are other needs out there. And I would love also to show that that's not all we're about. Um, are they are, are those cooperatives uh, purely US-based? I don't know, actually, if either of them have even had international breeders ask to join. I think from the perspective of sharing community, that would be fine. You, I mean, you have to see what they said. Um, from the perspective of sharing genetics, it would be a little more challenging, although you can ship semen. So there's that. I mean, you can ship dogs. <laughs> I guess it's just a little farther. Um, so, so far as, but they're, they're very US focused, right? Um, I would love to have a, I would love to have an international one. I would love to have a European one as well. Yeah, I've never understood this with the registries. I think maybe it's just a, uh, uh, like a historical thing. Obviously, at one time this wasn't possible, but now that we have the internet, I've never understood why we don't just have one kennel club. Because it's it exists now. So <laughs> yeah, I guess it's just go away when they when they have so much history. Yeah, I think that's I think that's definitely the case. So it sounds like you know eventually you're kind of hoping to have. You know, hopefully you can set up as many of these, uh, what do you call them again? Collaboratives. Yes, cooperatives. Yeah, I had, say that again, sir. Cooperatives. Co-ops. Oh, cooperatives. Yeah, my, my brain went blank then. Um, as, po- as possible, really, because you know, people do yeah. have different aims. And also, even if you want to crossbreed, I don't think there's many people that just want to crossbreed like endlessly. You know, like people usually, you know, like. Have a like, goal. There's, we see both. So I do see, I certainly see people sort of saying like, this is the, there's like, I don't know if you've heard of the Bearded Retriever Project. So it's basically a doodle type project, but they are aiming to produce essentially Labradors with the um, the particular coat genes that they want. So they have beards because um, they like the Labrador personality, but they like the poodle coat. So they're just doing some, I think it's like labs, goldens and poodles and they're mixing them together, but they are going for a, you know, a, a sort of end goal of what the animals should look like. Although I think they'll continue to to bring in new blood, but there's also groups that are just doing mixy mixes long-term. And a lot of those are the um, sport dog breeders more typically, but one of the, um, one of the cooperative, well, the, the Boston dog project, which is the people who run that project are the ones who founded one of the cooperatives. They do that. They're slightly more sporty, but they're pet dogs. Um, they just take, you know, whatever is, healthy and makes a really good pet and um, seems like a, a good match. So I, I said whatever in that sentence, which makes it sound like they're throwing things together. They're matching very carefully, but not based on breed. Fantastic. You know, another thing that I've heard you speak about, which is, you know, um, an interesting topic. Um, I think you might have a different word for it, though. In the UK, I always hear it called uh, co-ownership. Mm. Yeah, we call them guardian homes, but the people in the U.S. say co-ownership as well. Oh, okay. um, I think I think there's slightly different things, right? So co-ownership, you both own the dog and guardian home. Technically, the breeder owns the dog and the the person who you think of as the dog's owner is the guardian. Right, um, right. Co- not, co-ownership yeah. kind of got like a bit of a bad rap in recent times over here. Um, we're having a lot of issues at the moment with uh, XL bullies and... It's causing a lot of drama in the U- in the UK press with a couple of like high profile fatalities and stuff like that. And 
So there's been some documentaries and a lot of the documentaries found that a lot of the people that were breeding these dogs were doing, you know, had big networks of co- co-ownership where they would essentially mm-hmm. just like give people the dog to look after and then call them back for breeding when whenever they mm-hmm. wanted to. Um, and it was a way of like producing huge amounts of dogs. Um, and obviously it was being done very irresponsibly. So it's got, it got a bit of a um, bad rap recently, but obviously that's not how that's not how yeah. you intend to use it no well it's interesting that you say that so it's good to know that for context um i would say that it's a tool that can be used for good or evil um the same as almost any tool that we use in breeding um so it is a tool that helps you that helps a single breeder produce more dogs without having all the dogs in their home so what i'm battling against is the idea that if a breeder wants to have a, a good selection of dogs so that they can make good breeding choices. They may need to have 20 or 30 dogs, which means they'll keep them in kennels. And um, that is one of the things that we want to decrease the amount of seeing dogs living in kennels, right? So we want to see dogs living in homes. Um, I have three dogs. That seems like a a good, it's a good amount for, for me, though my husband would disagree. Um, some people, you know, can have up to like sort of five or six, but I think more than that, it starts getting really challenging for a lot of us. Um, some can manage it. So, so yeah, I guess I'd, I'd say that we're, we'd be using it similarly, except for that the breeder hopefully would be making good choice. <laughs> <laughs> How do you go about, like, is it just a case of someone inquires, and maybe this is like case by case, someone inquires for a puppy and you think, wow, this, this person's great. You know, uh, this is someone that actually would be like a really good candidate to do this kind of arrangement with. Um, or is it people within the cooperative that are kind of like arranging this? Uh, like how does it well, generally work? Yeah, both. Um, so I did, as I suspect, you know, cause you're asking these questions, but I'll tell your listeners that I did a podcast episode with G Kalsa um, who again is the head of our uh, educational arm and who has been breeding for quite a while and has a lot of experience with guardian homes. And so she had a lot of really useful stuff to, to talk through about how it's good for dog welfare um, and sort of how it works. So anyone who wants to dig into it, go look for that podcast episode. But um, yeah, I think it's, it's, again, it's sort of up to the breeder and possibly the co-op about how that works. But what G finds works best. I mean, so sometimes you'll have another breeder in the co-op and you may want to <coughs> have a guardian relationship with them, or you may want to just, they're in the co-op with you. You may want to just sell them the dog, right? Um, Cause you'll trust that they'll make the decisions and, and know how to breed the dog. But I think a lot of people, the way it works is that as they are getting applicants, they'll pull out an applicant and be like, this is one that looks like they'd make a good guardian home. And one thing that I emphasize is I think, and that that G feels strongly about as well, is it's really nice, if at all possible, to have the guardian homes be local, like within an hour or two's drive so that you can see the dog fairly regularly, Um, particularly with the the girl dogs, the female dogs, because you would like for them to be able to come back to the breeder's home to have their puppies, because you don't want to ask the guardian home to raise puppies, right? That's a pretty big ask. Yeah. so you want the dog to be familiar. You don't want to be grabbing her, bringing her back to a place that she doesn't know. Um, and so the way G does it is she, because um, she breeds uh, golden doodles, is she offers for the dogs to come to her house for grooming. Apparently she enjoys grooming. And so they'll come to her house, get groomed, have a spa day. 
you know, hang out. And so when they come to have their puppies, they're very familiar with it and they're very comfortable there. Yeah, I imagine in some ways it's probably easier with males, isn't it? Uh... You just collect and ship in a lot of cases. I think that is a lot easier. And so a lot of people will just put the boys out in guardian homes. Yeah, actually, do you know what? I can't remember if I heard this on your podcast or someone else's podcast that people were doing this a lot or trying to arrange this with working dogs, uh, you know, where you would place the dog and then um, and then have that kind of arrangement. Um, because sometimes when you place the dog, you never see them again. And especially if those people end up neutering the dog, you know, that is completely you know, that opportunity is lost, especially with working dogs. It can be a, um, you know, you can lose really good genetics. Was it, was it you that spoke about that? I don't know if it was, but I know for sure that, well, I know that the guide dog schools do often or almost always have their breeding dogs out in basically guardian homes. Um, and I know that that's hard. Um, I actually, Talking about breeding cooperatives, I interviewed uh, Marina Hall Phillips, who's the head of uh, the major North American breeding cooperative for assistance dogs. So that's a podcast episode that people could dig into as well. And I do remember talking to her. Um, I'm pretty sure we talked about that, about how she had someone who had a dog as a guardian and it she and it just wasn't going to work to breed the dog. Like the I don't I don't remember what it was that the guardian home had had some trauma. Um, I, you know, like a family member was sick or something and it was just too much and, sh- and they needed their dog. And she was just like, you know, sometimes you have to make that call and say, I put the dog in a guardian home and it turns out I really want the genetics, but I can't, I can't get them because it's not right for that home. I think that happens sometimes. Right. But that is life. Like the alternative is that you sold the dog and you don't have the genetics or that you kept the dog and now you have 20 dogs. So like, yeah, you're not going to get like stuff will happen. (laughs) Yeah. And I think also with males, I've heard of people keeping the dog for long enough that they can free sperm and then trying to find homes. Yeah. And right. Exactly. So if they really want to neuter the dog, you can collect and then neuter and then make your decisions later. That's true. Yeah. Boys are so much easier. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Super. I, uh, I feel like this podcast could go on and on and on. There's so much to kind of delve into. And, but I think what you're doing is really unique and really interesting. And it's a great solution because um, we have a lot of problems, I think, in the dog breeding world. And it's really cool to see someone come up with a, like an alternative solution. Um, Cause I feel like sometimes it can feel a little bit like there's only one way, you know, um, and yeah. I feel a little hopeless sometimes. So. Well, thank you. Yeah, I. it's a lot to spin up. I really love getting volunteers. So if anyone who's listening to this wants to help, I would love, um, you can go to um, functionalbreeding.org and there's a contact form. Make sure to put your email address on the contact form. Someone sent me a contact form recently without an email address. Um, but you can also just email me directly. Um, uh, if you email, probably the easiest thing for people to remember is info um, at functionalbreeding.org. That'll go to me. Fantastic. All right, super. So, is, yeah, there any, is there anything else you'd like people to check out? The podcast. Go listen to the podcast. I would 
definitely um, agree. And especially the Alison Skipper episode on registries. <laughs> so There's two episodes. She was so good. The first episode that people were like, you have to bring her back. So I did. I think I may need to bring her back again. People love that episode. Um, yeah, the podcast and um, the Facebook group. And we are, we have new um, social media feeds that we're spinning up now, which by the way, we also need volunteers to help maintain one on Instagram and one on TikTok. And those are meant, so the Facebook group is meant to be a place for dog nerds to come together. It's a lot of breeders, but it's also a lot of trainers and people who are interested in where their next dog is coming from. Having some complex conversations, the Instagram feed and the TikTok feed are meant to just sort of push information out to people who maybe love dogs, but aren't as interested in learning all the grimy details. Um, so check those out too. More followers helps us. And if you look at those and you think, gosh, I could help with that, then give me a yell. Oh, super. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was great. Well, I hope you enjoyed that podcast with Jessica Heckman. Before you go, I just want to leave you with one reminder. You can really help me to grow this podcast by just taking a screenshot on your phone of this podcast and sharing it on Instagram, sharing it on Facebook, or just sending it to a friend. That really helps us kind of raise awareness for this podcast because from my perspective now, I'm putting out so many podcasts and I hope you guys are really enjoying them, but it would be really cool if we could continue to let more people know about it. So I would really appreciate that. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'll see you in the next one.